0: My God! How could he do that? Are like, you donate on Donny? To...
1: What? Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at.
2: Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Grebber and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today, we are recording just after another very fun day of playoff basketball, but even more notably, some very big news. That being that Draymond Green will be suspended for game 3 of the Warriors series against the Kings after, of course, he gave DeMontis Sabonis a good old-fashioned stomp to the chest. The Dubs, of course, already down 2-0, Logan, perhaps in a bit more peril than you and I expected. Let's just start with this. Is the suspension in a vacuum warranted to you?
3: Yeah, probably. I I don't like it because I just don't like great players missing games and affecting the series, right? As a fan, you always Mm -hmm. want the best guys out there. Draymond Green is the best defender for the Warriors. He is a generational defender. He's a genius offensive player. So, you know, as a pure fan, no, I don't like that he's going to miss the ending of that game and also another game. But, yeah, it's probably warranted. I mean, Sabonis... I don't like how Sabonis handled that. He goes to the ground. It looks like he tries to drag Klay Thompson to the ground as well. And then when Dre goes to step over him, I mean, Sabonis clearly looks like he's wrapping his arms around his leg. Now, the one thing, it's like, Dre, you're on an NBA court with probably over 100 cameras on you, my friend. Like, anything you do is going to be picked apart, I mean, to an excruciating detail. Like you're not going to be able to hide intent on the court. Like I it's like a it's like a little kid or something trying to get away with stealing stuff out of the out of the cookie jar, man. It's like look little man, I'm going to notice a cookie's missing. Look Dre, I'm going to notice that you're really stomping down on a the chest. There's mm-hmm. taking a step and walking on him and continuing to walk and then there's mm, take that, you know? And he gave him yeah. one of those mm, he was trying to serve him one you're not going to be able to hide something like that. And I'm just disappointed in Dre because I, he just needs to stay engaged and keep his mind on the game. And it sucks losing such a valuable asset for, again, he's not thinking about those ramifications in the moment. He's thinking, yeah, maybe I'll fire my bench up. Maybe I'll fire up the rest of the Warriors. He's not thinking. There are bigger ramifications to this, and the bigger ramification is you're out the, the Warriors' third most important player uh, I think, in this series is going to be out for, and you could argue the second most important, is going to be out for another game. And so I am I like Draymond's competitive spirit. I like his fire, how fired up he gets. I like his energy. Uh, I, I don't like this from him. It's just a boneheaded play. I know he likes playing the villain. It's, it's boneheaded, Draymond. You're more valuable on the court. This is just nonsense.
2: I didn't love my phrasing of this question looking back on it. And I'll tell you why, Logan, because I used the phrase in a vacuum and I meant that as independent of, okay, how does this affect the outcome of the game? But also, I think probably a lot of people's first thought when they heard that was this decision was not made in a vacuum. This decision was made based on a reputation that Draymond Green has earned himself through repeated scuffles and questionable placements of legs and et cetera. So I don't like the suspension. And maybe I am also biased by the fact that I generally don't like things outside of who is the better basketball team, who is playing the better basketball affecting the outcome. I have been pretty outspoken about my stance that generally, unless things are coming to a place of physical contact, we shouldn't really assess technical fouls. I think we are way too liberal with them. Way too willing to just say, hey, you looked at me for a bit too long. You can play in there. I get it if it's like totally ruining the flow of the game. If somebody's saying something totally obscene, you can give the occasional tech. But generally, I'm like, let's just let the quality of play dictate the outcomes here. So I am coming from that perspective fundamentally. That being said, I do think this is one of the more egregious transgressions that I've seen on a basketball court recently, and I do think the ejection in the moment was warranted now when you're looking at the ramifications past that I don't love it because it's a heat of the moment thing and bottom line is Draymond was in an uncomfortable and sort of dangerous spot the intent with Sabonis is ambiguous it sort of looks like he's just trying to cover his face up because there's a lot of legs around it sort of looks like he's trying to grab Draymond's leg but the bottom line result is that's not a good spot to be in you don't want to be getting prepared to run in transition, and have some guy's arm wrapped around your leg. That is dangerous. So Draymond's response to that was very clearly excessive because it's not excusable to stomp deliberately very hard on a man's chest. And I've heard some people try to defend it as some sort of like natural movement. For example, Jason Timp, who I love. I'm on Hoops Tonight with him often at the volume. He's brilliant. But he made the case that sometimes you're in a full sprint motion and you're getting ready to plant and suddenly you've been tripped and so you're planting just as hard but in a different place. Clay Thompson specifically said he's in the middle of a sprint and this guy grabs his leg. What's he supposed to do? It's just not an accurate description of the situation because Draymond hadn't even begun his motion of taking off. He was landlocked from the beginning because he knew Sabonis was there and Sabonis was in that same position before Draymond had made any sort of forward movement. So, to me, that just doesn't hold water. I mean, it's pretty clearly a deliberate, aggressive, and also dangerous movement. Like, no, you're not going to need to legitimate injury with that. Now we hear that Sabonis has a sternum contusion. Okay, he's going to play. And it was very European of him, I thought. Very soccer player of how he sold the whole situation. But bottom line, it was inexcusable. It was completely excessive. Yet... It occurred in a heated moment when he was legitimately provoked by a dangerous, you could say dirty, I don't want to use that word because we don't know the exact intent, but nevertheless, dangerous basketball play. So that's where I come down on it. I'm bummed. I think it's unfortunate. And I do think that this is definitely... At least in part, a reputation suspension, but at the same time, I can't remember the last time I saw somebody stomp on another player on the NBA court. Like we still talk about Dominican Sue all these years later. You know, this was a bit more ambiguous, but nevertheless, pretty clear. So, outside of whether or not you think this is warranted, Logan, how does this affect the Dubs' chances in this game and in this series overall? it's massive i mean draymond yeah. suspension is huge uh, it's like
3: uh wait, i mean 20 it's like 2016 almost i feel like and i don't mean that on the scale but i mean losing draymond for a playoff game is huge especially when uh, this team has been getting killed in the the big defensive non-stuff minutes right it's like the warriors are already outsized brutally Len has been eating against his bench unit. You got Clay running a small ball four. You got Dre running the five. The dubs have not looked good in many ways in this series. And to lose, like I said, your best defensive player on a team that you have been struggling to defend all series long, you're down 2-0. Zach Cram, a great content creator at The Ringer, put out a stat on Twitter the other day. Teams that go up 2-0 win 92% of the time, okay? I mean, this is like the worst... This is probably the worst thing that could have happened. And it's almost predictable, right? If you're going to pick one guy out of this group, you talk about reputation that's going to get teed up, that is going to affect the outcome of of the series in a different way, it's going to be Draymond Green. And at this point in the series, when teams that are up 2-0 win 92% of the time, you cannot afford to lose your best defensive player. Such a cerebral, energy, heart guy that brings so much to this team... Um, I don't know how you can have confidence in the Warriors after this. I mean, it's it's brutal. The Warriors have to steal one game in Sacramento to win this series, and you just made one of your games at home at the Chase Center that are very imperative to winning this series that much harder. Um You gotta have, in my opinion, I mean, you just have to have that clairvoyance, you have to have that mm-hmm. that sight that it's bigger than this Draymond, because I see too, like. Like you said, it's a heat-of-the-moment thing, but you have to have that clear sight forward knowing that I can't do this because there are going to be bigger things on the table. Like, And it's just Draymond, that's who he is, man. You either love him or you hate him for those exact reasons. He's a very polarizing player, and I love, the, I love that Draymond wears his heart on his sleeve. I love that he cares. I, I mean, and in a way, too, Draymond loves that fucking villain role, too. He loves playing mm-hmm. that... Agitator, that instigator. And so I thought when he went off the floor, Draymond looked at it a different way than many of us looked at it. He looked at it as I'm going to fire up this team. I'm going to try to get into these Kings players' heads. I'm going to try to swing the momentum of this game in a different way by bringing some energy and momentum to the Warriors. One, that didn't happen. Two, they needed you. Three, you're not going to play in this next game. It's just bigger than that, man. And like, I understand this from from all the different angles and all the different sides, but it's bigger than that. And Draymond has been in the league far too long to not know that and to not realize that. And it's, like I said, man, it's boneheaded and it's frustrating. And I don't have a whole lot of confidence in the dubs. I mean, this is a major, major loss for them next game.
2: I do think when you talk about having the perspective It seems to be a fundamental philosophy of Draymond's that he is okay with the consequences and that no matter what, he is going to make the statement, I will not be fucked with. I'm going to stand up for myself, point blank. And he talked about this with J.J. Redick after the finals last year. You remember he had that moment where Jalen Brown was standing over him for a second and then Draymond pulled himself up by Jalen and sort of pulled down his shorts a little bit. And J.J. asked him about that and basically he said... I have kids watching like I'm not going to let them watch somebody make a fool out of me like that. I'm not going to be somebody else's bitch basically and so he has that mentality and you're right. He can be this great agitator, but at the same time he understands the value of getting somebody all worked up potentially getting them thrown out of a game. You can't also be the agitated to this extent because good for you man. Domas maybe isn't going to grab your leg again, but maybe he will because guess what? He got you thrown out for the last seven minutes of a close game and for the next one. So in terms of the importance to this basketball series, it is huge because the Warriors need these next two games and Draymond to me is clearly their second most important player and the track record says as much. Like in his playoff career, Draymond has a plus 14 on-off split. That is better than Steph's. This year, his on-off number was plus 13. That's five points better than Steph. As we talked about, why I made the case for him as Defensive Player of the Year, he single-handedly turns them from a bottom-five defense into the equivalent of the best in the league. He is everywhere. He is up there for the best help defender in the league. He's up there for the most versatile defender in the league. And so, you can switch him in any action and you are completely comfortable We've seen that. We saw that he did well in stretches on De'Aaron Fox in Game 1. We also saw him make DeMontis Sabonis legitimately uncomfortable in Game 1. He's on every rotation faster than everybody else. He's closing out on shooters more effectively than everybody else. He's communicating exactly what needs to happen at every moment. So to lose that is massive. Because clearly, the Dubs are having trouble stopping De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk from getting downhill and that to me is the biggest problem because game two we saw the kings didn't shoot well domos played better but bottom line it was the fact that they still couldn't really contain that dribble penetration and so losing draymond who was excellent in defending that at the level where he's dealing with your ball handler or as a help defender rim protector is huge and it also limits your versatility because In this series, you want to have every combination possible. And Looney has good feet for a big man, right? But it it could come to a point where he's getting exploited a bit in space. He's having to cover so many shooters. He's getting devastated out of pick and roll because he's playing drop and Fox is just nailing floater after floater. You just don't want to be limited. You don't want to be unable to play one of your three best players. And that's just on the defensive end of the floor. Because offensively... One of the key things that I looked at through game one that I hoped they would turn to more and then that they did turn to more in game two was that Steph pick and roll because I just think they need him to be brilliant in this series and I think that that allows for them to attack certain defensive weaknesses in Sacramento more directly and nobody amplifies the Steph pick and roll game more than Draymond because if it's a hard hedge, if it's a full-on trap. You have the best short-roll decision-maker that I've ever seen there who can find Clay Thompson, who can find Andrew Wiggins, these 40% three-point shooters. Looney has learned. He's a good decision-maker because he's a Golden State Warrior and you spend enough time there, it's going to happen. But he's not Draymond Green. He's not a genius. So it's limiting you there. And then if you just want to go Draymond at the five and say, hey, let's get into a shootout with this team. Like, let's just... Raise our offensive ceiling as high as it can go, and by the way, probably the defensive ceiling, because bottom line, the Dubs only need one guy who can guard Sabonis out there at all times, and other than that, it's about, all right. how can we guard in space, how can we handle this onslaught of shooting, and of quickness, and Draymond at the 5 is your best option on both ends of the ball then, because now you can play him with say Clay, Steph, Wiggins, and Dante or GP2, whoever you want, and that can be a lethal lineup, so it's incredibly devastating, and I think now the Dubs are kind of looking at we need a nuclear Steph game, and if Draymond were playing in Game 3, I would pick the Dubs to win, and I think I would probably still pick them to win the series. I would take it to go seven at this point. I think the Kings have proven themselves completely, but nevertheless, I do still believe the dubs at full strength are the more talented team here, but losing Draymond completely takes their defensive ceiling down multiple pegs. So what's your take? How do you see the dubs matching up here? What are the keys? What's your expectation?
3: Yeah, a lot of people, I've taken the temperature of this series from a lot of people um, down here where I'm at. I mean, a lot of them are writing the dubs off. I've heard a lot of Kings and Five, Kings and Five. I'm not ready for that. You know, I I don't think I am. I think I would still go, this series goes seven. I don't know which way because of the Warriors' struggles on the road. Um, You know, still 10 games below 500 on the road. Like, if it goes game seven and you have to go back to Sacramento... It's tough. But with Draymond out, it's like you said, dude. This team has been getting brutalized in non-Steph Curry minutes. And Stephen Curry is the only thing keeping this team afloat. I mean, if you don't have Stephen Curry, dude, the Warriors are... Are they a playoff team? I, I mean, I don't even ask that, no, like, as a joke. No, no, I don't no. even... They're 20 wins. Like, this team... They're, they really struggle without Steph on the court, and it's evident every single night out there, and there's a lot of red flags for this series that, I mean, if we were talking about just this matchup, just these first two games, I have no confidence in the Warriors. There's been nothing redeeming about this team outside of the fact that they've been close in both of these games, but there's a lot of things that just don't point to them being able to keep up with with Sacramento, and I mean that genuinely. Like, roster-wise and just reputation-wise, I think we expected it. That's why we expected the Dubs to come out of this series, because they play hard defense, they have Steph Curry, they they have the second greatest shooter of all time, that shooting and defense should be high enough with great Steph and Draymond that they should be able to win this series, but nothing has instilled confidence in me for the rest of this series. The biggest thing is the non-Steph minutes. Small Mm -hmm. ball clay, Dray at the five. Jordan Poole is shitting the bed and not carrying this bench unit like he needs to. They need Jordan Poole to play like he did last year. Mm-hmm. The Dubs have to cut down on their turnovers. You have twenty last, uh, you have twenty versus fourteen last game. Um, just boneheaded ones that the Warriors never make. This is something so uncharacteristic for such a crisp, collected Golden State team.
2: Well, just... they have always had a tendency to turn the ball over too much. They can get too loose with the ball.
3: And they like slinging quick passes, but it just feels like it's more often now in this series than has been this year. And there's just a lot of red flags, man. Um, Steph Curry, how they've defended him in the pick and roll too, I think, Carson. Them hedging and doubling him. There's not enough offensive talent out here when they do throw those doubles at him to to punish the Kings for over-committing, right? Uh, You've got negatives out there who aren't really well-rounded. Um, The Kings were able to get out in transition last game. And the biggest thing to me, Carson, I said this all, all year long, and I think this is something we've seen in this series, something you also touched on on Twitter. One, I think like you said, Steph Curry, when he's not getting doubled or hedged, I think has to get downhill more, has to just collapse the defense to create more open looks for his teammates. But on the larger scale than that, when we are in close game situations, this was my biggest complaint about the Warriors all season long. They are a great pull-up jump shooting team. They are a great shooting team, period. Right? They don't... It's hard consistently closing games out when you don't have a guy who can consistently exert pressure on the rim and get easy shots in the paint. You have Draymond Green, who is a complete non-scorer, on the inside like I, you saw that floater the uh, uh very early on in that game clings it off because he's not looking at the rim draymond's first instinct is to always pass that ball to the open guy you've got looney who lacks touch he hasn't had touch since he was in high school right uh, you've got wiggins who's struggled you've got clay who doesn't consistently get downhill more you've wiggins had a good game in game two i'll give him that and then you have steph who also doesn't get consistently downhill enough Points scored in the non-restricted paint area in the first two games. Very valuable spot come playoff time. The Kings have scored 48 points. The Warriors have scored 14. I mean, that's a huge discrepancy. And Mm -hmm. it's like I'm saying here. In tight games, you need consistent, easy shots. And three-pointers are what? At best, still only 40 to 50%, even if you're the Warriors, Carson. You can't expect Klay Thompson to hit four or five big threes in the fourth quarter of every game to completely swing the tide. Yeah, on top of this that the Warriors have not been able to defend the Kings at all. It's just yeah. nothing has looked good in these first two games. But that's my biggest issue, Carson, is these games have been tight, and the Warriors still cannot consistently get easy offense at any point. It's never been easy. In the non-stuff minutes, in close games, when, it, uh, when they need him to close games out, and the Kings have. The Kings have made offense look easy all season long. This is the area where I didn't expect the Warriors to struggle, and they have.
2: Yeah, and I will give the Kings credit for defending better than I expected. Yeah. Like, I thought throughout the regular season, this was one of the worst defensive, serious basketball teams that I've ever seen, a team that is trying to win and still just could not get stops. But they've done a good job on Steph. Nevertheless, I think especially with Draymond out, the Dubs need to rely heavily on, on Steph pick and roll just because now I don't trust the decision-making from the other guys to allow as much off-ball stuff for to develop for Steph and they've also guarded a lot of the off-ball actions well and the other thing that I touched on last episode is I think that Steph needs to commit more to getting downhill because you talk about that reliance on the perimeter shot making hey it's Steph Curry he's the greatest shooter ever but the dubs haven't shot well in this series they've been 32% from deep and If you look at how the Kings are guarding Steph, Davion is doing really well. He is applying tons of constant pressure, and he's not an easy guy to get by. And when Steph does go to pick and roll, Sabonis is getting up near the level of the screen. He's hedging hard, and he has solid feet, so he's going to get good position, and Steph is immediately seeing a body, and then Davion is recovering as that trailer quickly and ferociously. So... Steph's windows to attack are not long. And Sabonis is immediately presenting a physical presence to him. So props to the Kings. But Steph can still get the angle on Sabonis. That is still an advantageous matchup that he is winning a majority of the time when he commits to getting downhill. And when he has done that, he's been super successful. In this series, inside the arc, he's 11 of 14. So he's probably either scoring... Or he's drawing a foul, which we saw in game two. He took eight free throws. Six of those came off of drives. Or, like you said, he's collapsing the defense and he has an opportunity for a kickout. Or we saw one time in game two, kicked it out to the corner, relocated, got himself a wide open corner three. So I think that that is still a mismatch. And especially when he threatens the pull-up three. When you see a hesitation from him, Sabonis comes up to contest hard. It's an easy drive. He's right by him. And then there's no semblance of rim protection. And that's the other thing that we saw the Dubs experiment with is they had a nice guard on guard screen with GP2 where all of a sudden it looks like Malik Monk is going to be switched on to Steph, which is a mismatch. Steph doesn't even let it develop. He splits the double, got a beautiful drive. But I like that too, Right. Hunt the weakest defensive guard who's out there. Fox, he's not able to exploit right now. He's not as good as Davion, but Fox is doing a good job in this series. Malik Monk, he can go after. You can get by Malik Monk, and then Sabonis is honestly better in space than he is as a rim protector because he does have good feet and he's a smart guy. But he is a zero as a vertical athlete. And so that's where you can attack him too. I mean, we saw what happened on that play in the last couple minutes, that Sabonis attempt at a, Drawing a charge. I mean, first of all, that was a ridiculous charge attempt. He was still leaning into the contact at the final moment. But it's because he knows he's not a good rim protector. And that's Steph Curry, man. I mean, if you're going to be confident protecting the rim against any star player in the league, it's going to be Steph Curry and Sabonis still isn't. So, the bottom line is good things are happening when Steph drives. And... He's taken 27 threes through two games. Of course, he easily could have just had a better shooting night in game two. He was 3 of 13 from deep. He can make any look in the world. So, he could have easily been 5 or 6 of 13. But, they're hard looks. And, the Kings are contesting well. They're closing gaps quickly. And, I just think he's looking to the three too often when he's had much more success getting downhill. So, bottom line, I think you put the ball in Steph's hands as much as possible. And... I think he should be aggressive getting downhill in this game. The other thing that you touched on is how bad the non steph minutes have been. And I think a lot of that we have to put on Jordan Poole being absolutely terrible. Because there is nobody else on this roster who's a genuine offensive creator. Clay has grown into his game a bit this year. More comfortable as a ball handler and playmaker. But it's far from his strength. Jordan Poole is a legitimate guy who can get downhill, who can kill you as a pull-up jump shooter, who has playmaking chops. He has to be the one to carry the non steph minutes, and he's dealing with this ankle injury, but four points on one of seven from the field, bad finishing, bad shooting, bad decision-making is disastrous, and he wasn't good in game one either, and I said, maybe what the dubs are going to have to do here is only play pool 18 minutes a night because he can't defend, and you're still getting some offensive value and versatility from a Dante from a GP2 who can hang their own and we saw 15 Jordan Poole minutes in game two 15 minutes from Jordan Poole who was a highly efficient 18 a night in last year's tighter one hugely important to them reaching that ceiling because of what he was as that second creator and right now the dubs are only losing the series because of the non Steph minutes they're minus 25 without him they're plus 14 with him so Even with Wiggins stepping up, getting himself a couple of big buckets and non-step minutes in this game, it's not enough. They need Poole, and Poole is not delivering right now. And I do think the overall dialogue with him has gone a bit too far. Do I think his four-year, $140 million extension looks great? I do not. At the same time, Kevin O'Connor came out and said he has no hope for him. He's not a good basketball player. Jordan Poole has some awesome abilities. He didn't have a great shooting year, but he is one of the most deadly pull-up jump shooters in basketball. His playmaking has developed. He has a remarkable handle in terms of the ceiling. The consistency isn't there, but Jordan Poole does things that make you say, wow, and he just contributed to a title in a big way. He's just not consistent enough. His decision-making is too erratic. He's a liability defensively. All these things are true, but we don't need to go and pretend that Jordan Poole sucks because he doesn't, but he's a problem right now. And they need to find a way to overcome that. So those are the two biggest focal points for me offensively with the dubs and then defensively. It's like I said, they need to find a way to stop the Kings guards at the point of attack. And I thought they did a better job on Fox in game two, largely by lulling him into taking a bunch of threes. And it worked, especially early in this game. He started one of eight from beyond the arc. They're going under screens. They're not rushing out to contest him if he gets a look off the catch. But then there came a point where he realized again, oh, nobody can stop me from getting downhill, or at least to my mid-range or my floater game where he is significantly better than from beyond the arc, and so they can't actually stop him. I mean, they're equipped, they have good personnel, GP2, Wiggins is a good wing option, you lose Draymond here, but he's just incredibly difficult to stop coming downhill,
3: And it's not just Foxy either. The Sabonis high pick and roll, it might be the hardest thing to defend in basketball. I mean, it's the reason that this team was number one in offensive rating all season long. It's a nightmare trying to defend this team with these two guys out of the pick and roll. And not just these two guys, Malik Monk. Like I just Mm -hmm. think about what happens on the back end when they screen, right? No matter if you're going up or under these screens, there's just space on the back end that has been created every single possession. Basketball is a space game, and the Kings are great at just creating these little lanes for Fox or Monk to get into, and they've been killing it with these pull-up jumpers. I do mm-hmm. think the Warriors have the personnel to stop these guys, Carson, but there's a a continuity aspect in a collective locked in that I just have not seen from the Warriors' defense all season long and certainly haven't seen in this series. Like, it's a nightmare. I, when you're defending against a guy like Sabonis, who has great touch out there, who can play make. well, you can't just completely drop out of him, right? That's why the Warriors' pick and roll isn't as effective as with Steph Curry as it should be. Because you've got two offensive negatives in Looney and Draymond Green. And I don't mean to just completely shit on Draymond. Draymond's one of the greatest passing bigs of all time. But still, he just can't score. Yeah you're just in trouble the entire time. And then when you do try to get downhill, Fox is unstoppable, dude. He's been disgusting. And even despite that slow start, what else do we expect from this young man in the clutch, dude? Just one clutch player of the year. Yeah. 194 points this season. And closing out this game, you've got that tough baseline fader. You've got a couple pull-up Js. You've got that open top of the key three off the offensive rebound. Like, Fox turns up in these late moments, too, and it's just – Defending the Kings is an absolute nightmare, and the Fox pick and roll. I mean, if if the Warriors can't stop it, who can, man? I mean, maybe L.A., if we get that series with the size advantage they possess and the physicality that I think they can bring against Sacramento, because they lack size, too, uh, Golden State does... I, It's a nightmare defending this pick and roll, dude. Like, I think you have to also... Because I know that I want to show Fox love. Fox deserves so many flowers. So does Domas, dude. Domas creates so much of this Mm -hmm. just by moving around the top of the key and handing it off or just setting something up for his teammates because he's getting the defense to move. Yeah. Whenever Domas is moving on the inside of the arc, getting it to another guy, he's not putting the defense in rotation, but he's getting guys to think, oh, shit, where do I need to go? How do I defend this? You know, if he goes here... What do I do? It's it's, it's the best, best pick-and-roll duo in basketball,
2: man. It is interesting, though, because when I think of the Kings offense from this season, I do think of Sabonis as the most important guy because he completely changed how they were able to play along with Mike Brown, but we saw this shift to being so prolific with the handoffs. Kevin Herter, the other guy who totally changed his style because you had such a remarkable shooter, and all of this is enabled by Sabonis' screening and passing the off-ball movement, and the fact that anybody outside of Sabonis at any time is liable to make five threes on you in a night. That's what I think of. I don't think of isolation. I don't think of pick and roll because that hasn't been the Kings at any. It's like the Warriors offense, right? The Warriors don't do a ton of those things generally, especially in the regular season, neither do the Kings. But if we look at these two games compared to the regular season average, the Kings are running almost twice as much pick and roll, and they're isolating almost twice as much. They are saying, we are going to put the ball in our dynamic guards' hands, and they are going to beat you. And guess what? They have, because De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk are averaging a combined 56 points per game. So bonus wasn't great in game one. Herder hasn't been great in either game. They haven't had this unbelievable fluidity of ball movement and these crazy offensive sets not at least to the regular season extents, it's been, you can't stop our guards. And I don't know if that's changing. Like, you just have to hope that the pull-up jumpers leave them. But again, even in this game, Fox, it did leave him for most of it and he was able to clutch up and get to his spots in the big moments. I will say, the dubs just didn't play well in game two. Game one, I thought, was the opportunity to grab it because they were flowing offensively for a lot of those stretches. But, It was the non-step minutes. It was the end of the third in that game. This one, it felt like they were always just sort of trying to get into it, hanging in there, but they never really had their top stuff. But the Kings didn't either. The Kings shot 24% from three. De'Aaron Fox was two of 10 from deep. And they got the win. I got a
3: couple questions uh, I want to ask you about the dubs. Yeah, What's the most important aspect uh, of what they need to do? I think one of them... I mean, if the Dubs just cut down on turnovers, Carson, Yeah, w- would you give them a chance? I mean, 21.6% of the Kings' plays were in transition. Mm-hmm. Only 73% of their plays were against the Warriors' set half-court defense. I think that's massive. I said the Kings Absolutely. have a huge advantage in transition. I mean, and the Warriors have been one of the worst teams at turning the ball over again this season. If they can just slow it down a little bit and cut down on turnovers, I mean, do you think that's enough to to swing a couple games in this series? I know that's a a broad question, but if they can just cut out turnovers, do you think that could give them the edge?
2: No, not single-handedly, because now they need to find a way to win a game without Draymond Green. So I think it comes down to, you need either Steph to go Supernova, or you need Jordan Poole to be good. But you need more... Dynamic offensive creation coming from one of your key guards. I mean, sure, they could shoot better, right? They've only been 32% from deep. But they're not getting super high-quality shots. They're just not. And props to the Kings again for that, but it's also because you have one guy who can create for himself at a high level right now. Andrew Wiggins has been the second best at getting himself a bucket. So he's not a guy who's going to put the ball in his hands for extended stretches because he doesn't have the playmaking. So that's what I look at. I think it's got to be Steph taking it up a level. I think it's got to be Poole taking it up a level because that's the path. They have to go crazy offensively to win Game 3. I think they're not stopping the Kings, especially without Draymond, and especially given that I expect this Sacramento team to only shoot better. So that is really the stakes of this suspension because it has basically flipped my expectations on its head. I still had faith in the Dubs to win this series. I thought it would go the distance, but I thought they'd pull through. You go down 3-0, we've quite literally never seen it happen. So, sayonara, and I think that they are underdogs in this game. They can win, but it's not the most likely outcome.
3: And I mean, with Draymond suspension too, it's like, like you said you need a massive offensive game from the Golden State in the one spot you don't want to be against the Sacramento Kings is in a track meet trying to outscore them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just that's the worst spot, that's the worst predicament that Draymond could have put this team in because I don't think you're stopping them without Draymond. Like you said, he was your defensive player of the year, bro. Yeah. I mean— He changes <laughs> everything. So what's your, what's your official prediction then on this series? Do you still think this goes the distance of the dubs done in
2: five or the dubs done in six? Man, I don't know if I can hear myself saying that out loud, but given the fact that I think they're probably going to lose game three, I don't know. And I just want it on the record too. Yeah, this, uh, my
3: prediction for this series is aging like fine milk right now, man. This is up there in the, uh, <laughs> you know, I've never been one uh, to shy away from a bad take. Some would say that's the Logan Camden brand. I come on here and I spit on the mic and I say some nonsensical mess. This is, I've had some bad takes in the past, man. This is sizing up to be maybe my worst ever.
2: Well... No, no, no. It's not your worst ever. Let's not try to bury some other stuff in the past. DeAndre Hunter, top 15, player to build a franchise around. Steph Curry, the number 10 player you would want to win a title this very year. That was pretty recent, Logan. But we weren't too far off from each other. I mean, you used the word trounce. You said you would bet your mortgage. That -hmm. was a bit more confidence than I projected. (laughs) But bottom line, we both took Warriors in six, and I think that was the consensus because the Dubs have underachieved. And Jordan Poole being at this level makes the non-Steph minutes untenable. And they're losing those minutes badly. And I honestly thought that Steph would go insane in this series. I compared it to like Portland 2019, maybe his best series ever. And it hasn't been the case. And I will say, Davion Mitchell is huge, especially when he's playing well offensively. Because he had a good offensive game in Game 2, so you're comfortable playing him 28 minutes a night, and then boom, there's your best option for Steph for 28 minutes. So... I now think the most likely outcome is that the Kings win this series. I don't know if I could put a number of games on it because I never want to count out Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors, especially in a first-round series where I do think they have the higher ceiling and they have more talent and they have the two-way edge. Just not without Draymond. Okay, I think that's enough time on Dubs Kings, although it is certainly the most interesting series that we've seen Game 2 of. We also saw the Suns bounce back tonight pick up a win over the Clippers. What are your takeaways from that, Logan? I mean, the Suns were hitting everything.
3: Uh, KD and Book were eating for mid-range. This was a D-Book masterclass. And this is kind of the Jekyll and Hyde act that I maybe expect to see from the Phoenix Suns throughout the entirety of this playoffs. It's a double-edged sword that is Phoenix. It's the best way that this team wins games, and it's the best way that this team can lose games. Pull-up jumper swing series. KD and Book were lights out. Chris Paul at the end of this game when you needed him. Hit some big pull-up jump shots to put this game to sleep. Like, that's what I mean. We talked about this after game one, Carson. There's not a really great rim pressure on this team, a guy that can consistently get easy offense. Well, there is a guy. There's actually two guys. Their names are Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. If they get fully downhill, it's to be determined. But they were knocking down all their pull-up jump shots, and when all the shots are falling... This is not a great defensive performance from the Clippers. I also want to say that, too. Um, But still, when all these shots are falling, the Suns can look like the world beaters that we expect them to be. And when this shot isn't falling, they they can be Mr. Hyde. They can be mid. They can be pretty abysmal. And you can be really disappointed in them. One of the biggest differences I thought was in this game was how Monty handled these minutes. Thank you, Monty. Thank you. And this sucks. It sucks that you're going to have to do this every single game in every single series that you play. CP3, Book, and KD are going to need to get 36 to 40 minutes, depending on how the game is going, every single night because your bench does suck. CP3 gets 37. Book and KD get 44. Aiden and Craig get 31. This is your best lineup. This is your best unit. You are going to have to run these guys dog-tired through the playoffs. I mean that, and they just need to be prepared to do it because you do not have the bench, I think, to compete with any team, dude. I mean, any team. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I just thought that uh, the Clippers' defense didn't play a great game. I thought the Suns were a little more physical, Play had a little more uh, hustle in them tonight. I thought Aiden had a better game on the boards. And the Clippers just collapsed a little too much on Book and KD, man. It's tough. It's hard defending those two guys. They're the two best scorers on the planet. It led to a lot of open threes. Torrey Craig did his job, played good defense, made open shots. Um, but this is what we thought from the Suns, Carson. When Book and KD are on, they should look unstoppable. Mm-hmm. They should look like the best offense in basketball. And when Chris Paul can do his thing too, yeah, I expected this. Um, I think there's going to be a big toll on their on their big three, though, Carson. And it's going to test their metal. I think it's going to test their the strain on their bodies, if they can hold up. That's the biggest thing to me is that I thought Monty did a much better job instead of turning to the bench unit for big stretches. You need your big dogs out here for basically all of this game, and it's going to take a big toll through these playoffs. If they can hold up, I have faith, but you're going to need these guys to do this every night because um, you don't have a deep bench whatsoever. Uh, I do want to say, too, shout-out Book, what he did. I mean, master class, shout-out KD. I don't think the Suns win this game without Chris Paul, man. I thought Chris Paul played a played a really good game, um, Mm -hmm. start to finish, and especially like I said, closing this game out though. Um, No, I I wasn't really surprised. I think this is the, like you said, after game one, man. I think this is the worst the Suns are going to look, and this is probably the, you know, one of the best. This is the best versions of the Suns you're going to get. What am I going to bank on us getting more consistently? This version all day, man. I trust Kevin Durant and I trust Evan Booker to be absolute stone-cold killers.
2: This could not have been really further from Game 1 because the Suns were unbelievable for mid-range. If NBA.com is to be believed, which is as good of a source as I know of, Logan, the Suns were 21 of 29 for mid-range tonight. Seventy. 2% compared to game one where they struggled they were 8 of 27 under 30% so that is exactly the kind of roller coaster ride that we are going to be on with this team because they're so dependent on it now I think that far more often than not we're going to be on the fun part of that roller coaster ride because they have three of the best mid-range shot makers dare I say ever I mean Lord knows that the body of work with CP3 and KD have them up there. And Book is certainly one of the best mid-range shooters in the game today. So it was all working. And when it's all working, yeah, they have unmatched creation out of the pick and roll. It also does really matter that all of these guys are good playmakers. And so you can't try to trap them. You can't really try to double them. They're going to dissect you. And when the guys around them are shooting the ball well, then this offense is incredible. And I just want to give a huge shout out to Torrey Craig for balling his ass off through two games. I mean, he's averaging like 20 a night on crazy efficiencies, just shooting the ball unbelievably well. So big props to him. This isn't going to be a great shooting team overall from beyond the arc, but they are going to be incredibly deadly with the pull-up jump shooting. And CP3 to me is the most interesting guy to track because I think that KD and Book are just absolute top-notch pick-and-roll scores. I've said, I think, one of the most talented scoring tandems that we've ever seen and the best in the league right now. But CP3 has had a really down year in terms of his scoring. And you may look at his last few regular seasons and say, well, the production's never been there, but then it's come to the playoff stage and he's stepped it up. Big time like last year he was under 15 a night in the regular season and then in the playoffs he was up closer to 18 and he was shooting 56% from the field and the year before that in the finals run he had some devastating scoring performances and that's true but Chris Paul's scoring game is predicated basically entirely at this point on the looks that he gets out of the pick and roll from the short mid range still in that painted area and from the mid-range and he has been one of the best shot makers in the world at those historically but last year he made 60% of his shots in the paint outside the restricted area this year he made 49% this is an over 10% decline he was 52% from mid-range last year under 48% this year so he's still relatively good at those shots He's incapable of getting to the rim or finishing around the rim at this point in his career. He's not a dynamic pull-up jump shooter from beyond the arc. So when he's not making those, it's devastating to his scoring game. He becomes completely ineffective. But when he's making them, yeah, I mean, he can attack so many different bigs out of pick and roll and just say, okay, you're going to play drop. You're going to sit a little bit too deep in the paint. I will make these like layups. And we've seen that too many times to discount it. But that's just something that I'm continuing to track because game one, he was off. Early in game two, he was off, and then he was lights out. So, the level that he can reach as a scorer, I do think matters for this team. Because I think if you have three guys who can go out there at any moment, attack any matchup, and get themselves a bucket, man, that's still tough to stop out west, even with these other limitations. But, this did affirm to me that the Suns should still win this series. There's just a talent difference, and that's what it comes down to. Like, the Clippers don't have this kind of creation. They don't have these kind of guys you can turn to every possession. And we knew that. Outside of Kawhi Leonard, who continues to cement himself as one of the best playoff performers ever, to me a top 30 basketball player of all time. I think he's unbelievable. But outside of that, I mean, Norman Powell didn't really get it going. And it's kind of only those two and Russ who take on that actual ball handling, let me get myself a bucket responsibility. And they had trouble with Russ. Like... It's hard for the Suns to contain an athlete of that caliber. And that's going to be another thing that we'll have to watch is how's their point of attack defense? Because even sagging off of Russ, he was able to get a lot of good looks in this game. And it wasn't as much of the hideous game one. Oh, let me just try to overpower you. You know, take my ugly turnarounds, my, my hideous jumpers. So Russ played well, but end of the day, The Suns have way more offensive talent. And their top four is really, really strong. And by the way, Aiton was making all of his shots tonight. I mean, he was deadly from mid-range. So when all that goes in their favor, they're going to be pretty tough to stop. But all the questions that we raised after game one still do remain. They are really reliant on that mid-range shot making. It is going to make them a great offense because they're so good at it, but it's not ideal to lack that versatility. Their depth is still a concern with the bigs and the wings. And uh, I do still think we need to see them prove themselves in the physicality rebounding areas of the game. So I I really like the Suns. I absolutely think they can win the West. And it was like we said after game one, it showed us the downsides of the Suns experience. It didn't condemn them as a contender. It was, hey, this is how it's going to look on a bad night. And on a bad night, they still were pretty darn close and Katie and books still played well. It was just, there were lulls and some of the other weaknesses were exposed. Okay. Let's talk about the other game two that we saw today that had a very intense competitive game. One Logan actually prompted you to change your thoughts on the series in its entirety. That being calves, Knicks, Knicks took game one today. The calves, came out and with the exception of the first like 18 minutes just kind of blew the doors off the Knicks were up by 20 at halftime so what were your takeaways from this
3: game two is what I expected from the Cleveland Cavaliers in game one um Darius Garland absolute master class uh says after the mm-hmm. game told me my teammates told me to be aggressive and shoot the ball in fire me Damn, up, yeah. Darius Garland. <laughs> I mean, dang, man. Like, I, we've had a lot of Carson Brewer favorites pop out very early in these playoffs. Roy oh, yeah. Achimura has a big game. We got some Malik Monk nice games. Got another uh, Carson Brewer classic here. Darius Garland was just disgusting, man. 32-3-7, 8-17, 6-10, also getting downhill, 10-11 of 11 from the line, and... Just aggressive early. Twenty six of thirty two in the uh, of his thirty two points in the first half. Lavert also pulls his weight. Twenty three four and three on nine of sixteen. Four and nine two of two. It's what I said after game one. Uh, If Lavert or uh, Garland pull their weight in game one, the Cavs probably win that one too. Now, I also said the Knicks shooting in this series is going to be very important to the outcome. 7 of 29, the Cavs go 14 mm-hmm. of 33. There's a different offensive level of trust deeper down. I think the Knicks have more quality players, point-blank period, right? The Ricky Rubios of the world, the Dean Wades of the world, the Chetty Osmonds, the Isaac Okoros mm-hmm. versus Quickly, Grimes, Toppin. There's more deep guys there, but the Cavs flat out have better buckets, just better scores. and when all those scores are on in the night, and all the Knicks scores are kind of off and not hitting their shots that they need to. This is how this game could look. The Knicks physicality and rebounding ba- uh, advantages can kind of go out the window, especially when I thought the Cavs were more physical, hustled yep. more, and they won the rebounding battle. This is just a different Cavs team, and the second quarter really dictated this game. Nineteen points off turnovers in the second quarter. In the second quarter, Knicks absolutely shit the bed. 27 total points off turnovers in this game. I mean, I switched to the Knicks because I didn't expect Garland to wake up. I thought this might be too big of a stage for him. I thought we could get a bad Lavert series. But I'm not surprised at this outcome. If Garland, Mitchell, and Lavert do this all series long, I have complete faith in the Cavs to close this out. They just have better offensive buckets, right? Like, the Knicks don't. You're trusting Julius Randle and R.J. Barrett and their janky selves to... To be great i don't expect that i was very impressed um and i hope garland keeps this up man when he's on fire when he's shooting like this when he is being aggressive when he's confident in himself darius garland is a very special player and uh it was a lot of fun to watch that that first half was was something special man um i'm not surprised at all in this and like i said if these scorers can keep doing this throughout the series i think cleveland can do this thing even with their lack of depth even if the Knicks might be a better rebounding and defensive team or the Cavs had the number one defense. Um, when these scores are on, I think the Cavs can do this consistently.
2: This was the Cavs model that I bet on. I do think that they have the best three point pull up shooting duo in the NBA. And to anybody who would say the Warriors, that's fine. Clay obviously can make any three in the book. I just don't consider him a pull-up jump shooter i consider him primarily a guy who's going to do his work off the catch but that is like the identity for garland and mitchell and they can be absolutely lethal and so a lot of this came down to shot making garland lavert and mitchell outplayed randall brunson and rj by a thousand times over and so that was the difference and in the first half it was really mostly garland like you said i mean the knicks just could not generate quality offense And Garland was getting whatever he wanted. So it was the combination of the dynamic offensive creation from your guards and the great defense, especially on the interior, that we hope to see. So I thought, although the pure shot-making gap was very evident, the Cavs also just got better looks. I did not think this was a great defensive game from the Knicks. I thought particularly Julius Randle had some awful moments, like just... This isn't even about them containing the guards, but Evan Mobley probably had three wide-open takes in this game that were all caused by Randall falling asleep somewhere and not protecting the rim whatsoever or staying attached to his man. But I also thought that the Cavs did a better job on Jalen Brunson, and I thought that the strategy of really sticking the wings on him, a combination of the Leverts, the Danny Greens of the world, was more effective than what we saw in game one because bottom line, Brunson's greatness is not going to be defined by his ability to get by you. I did think that we saw at the end of game one, yeah, he was able to get by Chetty in a couple spots, but I still think Chetty was a better option than the guard guards, Mitchell or Garland, who I don't think can hang at all. And so what I thought after game one was, Brunson's pretty much unguardable in this matchup but I don't know if I feel that way now because the wings are bigger they're longer they're able to affect his shots more and I thought they were able to force him to settle more because he wasn't able to just work his way to his spots easily so bottom line is Brunson is liable to have a massive game at any moment but I did think they did a much better job on him and he ends up five of 17 and what was he one of Ten from deep or something. I mean, it was one of eight, not super pretty. So I thought that this was legitimate improvement from the Cavs beyond just hey, our two guards are playing awesome. And another thing that I really liked, one of the concerns that I raised with Donovan Mitchell, even as he had 38 in game one, was uh, that he completely dominated the ball and became sort of this black hole in the last six minutes and. Dictated each of their last 12 possessions, shot the ball on 10 of them, a lot of those being pull-up threes, and I think he must have reflected on that, because Darius Garland got X'd out in that second half of Game 1, and in this game, Mitchell was completely comfortable deferring to him, whether it was letting him be the primary ball handler and just go get his himself a bucket but also I just thought Mitchell was unselfish when he had the ball too and when he was creating throughout this game and he had some great finds to Mobley and he did set up Garland on an occasion or two so it was a really good game for the Cavs but it was a really bad game for the Knicks I mean the Knicks shot the ball horribly neither of their two stars produced at a high level and Randall has now been inefficient through two games and he's had a lot of turnovers and I did think that The Cavs did a good job on the interior with him. There was that one possession where they stripped him twice. And there just was more feist, and I thought, more grit from them, like you said, in this game. But also, I think, you weren't able to get any of those massive impact games from your supporting wings. And RJ sucked and I think the reality Logan is just that RJ is not a 33 minutes a game guy in a playoff series We talked about it last game You get so much more winning value from guys who can shoot the ball well And who are also going to make good decisions and defend well and RJ Has his moments as a playmaker. He has his moments as a defender. I mean, he's a good defender. I would say but he's such a horrible shot maker that he just can't have a high-volume role in your offense.
3: Calling RJ a a shot-maker is...
2: um, Excuse me, a shot-taker.
3: Yes, yes. I think that's what you were looking for, my friend. Yeah. I mean, even giving, like... Fuck it, man. Slot uh, Grimes in at the three, man, and put IQ in at the two. And I know... Quigley didn't have a great game, uh, game one. You know, 12 points in 23 minutes. I, I know you want him running this bench unit. In my eyes... It's the playoffs, man. Play your best players and have them on the floor as much as possible. I don't think you're losing much defensively by having him out there instead. And I think you're getting a, a another dynamic guard who can create for himself, who can create it at the pick and roll, who's a good decision maker. But more importantly, a good scorer, a good shot maker, and a guy that can create offense from any level of the floor, what does that do in turn to the defense? Well... Allen and Mobley have to respect his mid-range game, too. Opens up a little more space on the floor for the rest of the guys. Like, I just think it makes more sense. There comes a point when you're playing basketball, when a guy is missing enough shots, and when a guy has as funky a jump shot as R.J. Barrett, you're just going to let him shoot. I mean, you're just not scared of the guy punishing you. And they're not. I. Yeah, I, I, I think that if the Knicks are going to make an adjustment, and I know it's a hard one to do, right? It's like... Uh, I'll compare it to another New York situation. It's like the Jets going away from Zach Wilson, right, to Mike White. That's a tough decision to make, man, on a guy you took with the second overall pick. What was RJ taken with? Three. Taken third overall. I mean, it's it's humbling. It's a sad reality. The Warriors traded a former second overall pick this season. or Was mm-hmm. Wiseman second or third? Wiseman was second, yeah. Traded him for a second-round pick. Sometimes you got to put your ego down, and you got to make the best decision for the team and for winning games. The Jets felt that was to go to Mike White. The Warriors felt that was to get some second-round picks and to get Gary Payton for this playoff run so they'd have a chance to do some damage in the playoffs. And I think the best decision for the Knicks is to give those minutes to Emmanuel quickly because I just think he's a fundamentally better basketball player, and he does more for your team. On offense, and I think in a series like this, that's more important. And so it's it's, it's always a tough decision to make, especially because it's like you're putting your hand up. We made the wrong decision. We didn't do this. RJ's not there yet. I think it's better for your team in this series. I think that is something they should explore, man. I mean, RJ's just a... He's just mid, man. I like RJ. I think he's a good dude. He's just not a great player right now, and I think he hurts them in this series. You need shooting. You need shooting. If there's one Mm -hmm. thing that the Cavs are going to give to the Knicks this series... It's three-point field goals. You can't shoot 7-29 from deep against the Cavs and win. It's just not going to happen.
2: It's just crazy to me how much people have talked about Poole shortcomings relative to RJ Barrett. Because they both got their extensions. I mean, there's no question who I would rather have on my team. At least there are great players who you look at Jordan Poole and you say, Hey, they have the same high-end traits no great player in the league looks anything like RJ Barrett, dude. Sure, his pace is great. His size is good. His playmaking defense, things we talked about that can be positives for him. It's a make or miss league and RJ does a whole lot more missing than he does making and he can't play complimentary style really because outside of his second year, he has been a bad catch and shooter a bad shooter from beyond the arc too so i don't mean to just rag on the guy but it's like damn he's just about to start getting his four years 120 million we've talked about it before you got to try to move that i think because this brunson contract is such a steal that you can put so much talent on top of that contract and rj is not going to live up to that figure at any point
3: and shop him while he's got value, man. Like just this off season, just shop him. Around. Like in, you don't talk about windows too, man. I mean the, I don't know how long the window you've got here. It's why these guys are on these contracts. Let me ask you this: on the big scale for the Knicks, can Julius Randle be the number three guy on a title-winning team?
2: I think I lean no, because I don't know if Julius Randle can be the number three guy anywhere. I mean he just imposes himself on the game, man. He has the ball in his hands a lot. He's going to play his style. He's going to get to his spots. So uh, he's also on a good value contract. When you look at how he played for stretches of this season, but there is still a lot of downside with him being in a high volume role offensively. And I do think he can hold you back. So I don't know. Maybe it's a total retool around Brunson. Maybe they do try to fit those, that third star in alongside Brunson and Randall but I'm not super high on Randall scaling to a great team
3: do you think Brunson's a number two or a number three on a championship team
2: absolutely yes which which one which championship team oh a number two or a number three I think you be a number two I think Jalen Brunson is like a top 20 player or at least very close to it I'd have to map it out this was one of the worst games from him that we've seen in several months i mean we've said it before but since january 1st the guy has been an efficient 28 points per game and he just has so much control and lethal lethal shot maker okay celtics hawks again the celtics just ran those guys so i don't think we need to get into the nitty-gritty of this game what's your big picture take for boston like are you now viewing them as even more of a heavyweight with how good they've been in these first couple games
3: I'm going to be honest. Uh, no, I'm not. I don't want to overreact to the Hawks series, if I'm being honest. The Celtics have looked like world beaters, and it's a lot of fun watching them play against, excuse my French, uh, cover your ears, kiddos, and for lack of a better term, against such a shitty team. It's a lot of fun watching a really, really good team who might win the NBA Finals <laughs> going up against a really, really bad team who probably shouldn't be here. Um, the Celtics just do so much Everything's so much better. You've got so many different ball handlers, so many guys in transition, um, so many just big plays happening. It looks so easy for them because the Hawks uh, perpetually seem out of sync for some Mm -hmm. reason. Um, I don't really dramatically look at the Celtics any differently, but the thing I think you can take away from this series is the bevy of creators that they can turn to on any given night. And that is still my favorite thing against the Boston Celtics. And a key advantage, I think they hold over every other team in the NBA. Derek White, Marcus Smart, Malcolm Brogdon, all these great role guys who play great defense, who are ball handlers, who can score night to night. They're plus 20 in Brogdon minutes. That's my guy, man. I love Brogdon. He's such a cerebral player. And then you're let out by these two great wings. They're just a... They're a great conglomerate. Um, No matter how how bad they beat the Atlanta Hawks, I don't think it'll change my opinion of them. But uh, even outside of that, too, uh, outside of the bevy of creators that you have with the ball in their hands, you've got guys that can kill you night to night. You can get a big Sam Hauser game, for Pete's sake, man. You can get a big Al Horford game. Um, You know, they can just kill you in so many different ways, and that's one of my favorite things about Boston. I don't look at them dramatically any different, but... Uh, this has been a really fun series to watch for them. Just to, I kind of look at this as like a tune-up series for them, man. You know, Boston's just getting mm-hmm. ready yep. for the for the nitty-gritty of these playoffs, and uh, I've been very impressed. They haven't they haven't looked bad. They haven't looked poor. They've looked really engaged to every single possession against Atlanta, and that's what I've liked too. There's been moments, and by moments I mean really big stretches where Philly has looked disengaged against mm. Brooklyn, right? I, the Celtics are not letting up. They, they do not look like they're playing games. Even against a team like Atlanta, where they probably could take their foot off the gas a little bit, they're locked in the entire way through. And uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, no big picture stuff, but Boston is doing and being great at the things I expected them to be great at.
2: Yeah. And to me, they are like the epitome of modern basketball all wrapped up into one team. They have two big-time shot-making wings. They have this incredible depth and variety of more than capable, good ball handlers and creators beyond that. They have this insane defensive versatility and basically everybody who plays meaningful minutes for them can defend at a high level and can probably defend multiple positions capably and switch at a high level. And then they have elite shooting in most of their lineups. Everybody can shoot the ball well. Like, of course, you get the Robert Williams minutes, but you get a lot of Horford at the five, and then everybody is liable to have a big-time shooting game, and almost everybody on the floor is skilled, because Horford's just not a great shooter. He's a good decision-maker. He's a good passer. So, they are, when they're clicking, man, who something to behold, and we'll see what Milwaukee's capable of doing with Giannis. I think Giannis has to play really well to beat the Celtics. Now, I do think Giannis will play really well because I think he's the best basketball player alive, but I agree with you. What you get from the depth pieces here on top of this great top two wing tandem, like Derek White, dude, I just have to give a shout out because he's been one of the best role players in basketball all year. He's been the Celtics' third best player since February 1st. He's 16-5 and on 62% true shooting. In this series, he's scoring 20-plus a night with great efficiency, and he's just... So versatile. On the offensive end of the floor, really, you see, sometimes they use him as a screener. Like, he cuts well. He's a very willing catch and shooter. And then he's quite good out of pick and roll. And he has abused Trey Young. Abused him. In this series, Derek White has 50 points on 18 of 29 shooting. And there's just an ability to get to the rim easily, or if it's not all the way to the rim, to eight feet away, put up his floater or whatnot. And he's had a good pull-up jump shooting series and been good from beyond the arc overall. And then defensively, we both had him all defense. He has Trey in jail because Trey can't get by him. The couple chances that he has had, Derek White has challenged very effectively. He blocked him twice in this game today. And then that really shows you want to Trey's greatest limitations because he's not a true great shot maker. Like he has his floater that you think of. He makes 48% of those. But other than that, he's not a great finisher at the rim. He's small. He's slight. Shoots 54% in the restricted area. That's not good. He's under 42% for mid-range. That's fine. That's a relatively tough shot. It's not efficient offense and it's not the high-end mid-range shot making that we see from the top guys, and then he's under 34% on threes, and yeah, he can pull from as deep as you need, but he's not making them at an efficient clip bottom line, so that's a big limitation for Trey when you have a small guy who needs to completely dominate the ball, is totally ineffective without it, is always going to be the worst defender on the floor, is relying on getting to the line at a really high volume, which we always know is harder in the playoffs, and then is not a legitimately great shot maker, it's like, yeah, it's going to be rough to build a great team around that guy, and that's what we've seen. And Atlanta is in a really rough spot. I don't love the DeJounte fit. I do think that they have some solid role players who you can sell for parts. Like, I mean, DeAndre Hunter's just flat out really good. Onyeka honestly might be their best asset. I just think Onyeka is, first of all, still on that rookie contract, but so good at his job. And then, I don't know, man. They're just in a pickle. They're pretty all-in on a team that is not good, especially what they gave up in that package for DeJounte. And I think that Trey is not a guy you can build a championship-caliber team around. We saw them get to the conference finals without another great second creator, and in some ways that was impressive, but in some ways it was like that's because Trey needs to have complete control of every possession. He does not fit well along another really gifted creator and every time that the ball isn't in his hands you're totally limiting his value but when the ball is in his hands every possession how high can you really go we did see them have a great offense last year but they suck defensively so I'm not going to sit here and say that the Hawks should be a title caliber team because they shouldn't but they should be better than 500 and getting trounced by the Celtics embarrassed if Trey Young were the player that at times he's looked like and people have said him to be i mean flat out logan no ifs ands or buts about it Derek white through two games has been a better basketball player than trey young he has had significantly more success scoring on him one-on-one trey has not had a good playmaking series he's got five turnovers in each of these games hasn't had that sort of like incredible control of the game amplifying everybody else it's and It's
3: hard building a championship contender not only because I mean you touch on a lot of the basketball points about Trey he's a major negative defensively he does pound the rock he needs to have it in his hands to be a special player
2: it's hard he's weird looking I, too. he's
3: pretty funny looking um <laughs> it's hard yeah it's hard building a championship contender around a guy who's that beat you know it's hard <laughs> building a championship contender around a guy who's not a great leader in locker room presence as well, a guy who's going to rally the troops and get people to buy in. I mean, this is, again, set the table. I mean, this is a team that's been through, what, three head coaches in three seasons? It, it, it's tough. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's – that's an aspect of it, too, that I think matters. And I kind of feel bad for Atlanta, man.
2: I think they bought the Kool-Aid. I think they bought the Kool-Aid that Trey Young was yeah. stirring up, man. Well, you kind of have to. I mean, what else are you going to do, right? When you have this guy's producing at this level and you make a conference finals and then you have the number two offense in basketball without another star and you invested this high draft pick into him. He was the best thing they had going for them. But he's also kind of the thing that limits them because you stick to him and then there's not such a high ceiling. So, I mean, do you think the Hawks should dramatically retool? Uh I don't really know how easy that's going to be to do. I mean, John Collins is on a pretty big contract for the next three years. Nobody's going to want that. Capella's getting 20 plus million for the next two years. I don't know who's chomping at the bit to have that. DeAndre Hunter at $20 million a year, a little bit more for the next four. You could move that, I think. It's not a great value contract, but it's certainly the best out of the bunch. But I don't know. What are you going to ship those guys off for? Because you're not getting equal value and talent back. Because, I mean, those contracts are mostly burdens. So I don't know what they do. I think that they're stuck. And I think that really they're going to have this referendum after next year because they still have control of DeJounte through them. They still have control of Onyeka through them. They still have control of Sadiq Bey, Jalen Johnson, Bogey, like, they'll i think run it back with a pretty similar roster next year and then i think they'll be disappointed again and i think they'll blow it up at that point okay last series to touch on that we've seen in action sixers nets sixers this one was more of a battle than game one but nevertheless up 2-0 here what are your thoughts logan
3: uh, yeah, like I briefly touched on earlier, I was really disappointed with the Sixers' level of engagement right out of the gates defensively, uh, especially from James Harden. And I don't want to see this moving forward from Harden, uh, falling asleep on guys who were just wide open on the corner, not closing out, giving guys shots. For people who didn't watch this game, the Sixers were down 49-44 to at the end of the first half and had to claw back to make it 49-44. to I mean, this is a 10-point game with uh, a couple minutes left in... The second quarter, Cam Johnson was giving the Sixers all they could Mm -hmm. take, man. In the first half, 22 points, 4 of 7 from deep, knocking down layups, pull-up jumpers, and he, man, put one down on Joel Embiid, Mm -hmm. dude. Just put one in his mouth. It was nasty. Um, I thought they defended uh, the Sixers pretty well on the other side. They switched to a 2-3 zone at some point in this game. That worked for a little bit. Then they started picking it apart. They continued to throw doubles at Embiid. He struggled a little more against them in the first half. And that's one aspect I want to talk about this defensively for the Nets. I think the way Jock Vaughn coached this game and stylistically wanted to play the Sixers was the right idea. He put in a lot of small lineups. He went complete small ball against them, wanted to stretch the floor. We're going to throw doubles at Embiid all game long, and we're going to make sure that we can go five out, and wherever the ball goes, we have a shooter that can knock down that open shot. Um, It worked for a little bit. They put up a bunch of threes if they had made more. Maybe this is a closer game, but you knew there was a ceiling on it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you touched on about throwing doubles at Embiid, I thought, Carson, yeah, when Embiid's on a low block, give him a double. Yeah, when Embiid gets one at the elbow— Maybe surprise him with a double on the backside and see if you can poke the ball loose. They did that a couple of times. The one thing that I didn't understand, like you touched on, why are you throwing doubles at the top of the key? I mean, dude, that's easy. Mm -hmm. Like, you're giving them free points, and he did that a bunch in the second half where it was just cake for Embiid. Either a kick to the corner, easy P.J. Tucker three, couple swing passes, wide open three. Uh, You're selling on your defense like that. Um Sixers come out in the second half, look super engaged, uh, end up switching to a 2-3 zone uh, of their own. Looks a lot better. They were locked in. The defense was so much better, and they just started to pull away, kind of like we expected. Cam Johnson cooled off a little bit. McHale Bridges didn't have a great game. Um, A great game from Tobias Harris and Tyrese Maxey, I thought, Carson. Um, Tyrese goes for 33 Not a regular Tyrese Maxey 33 piece where he's doing a whole lot of damage in the pick and roll, picking apart defenses. It was a lot of deep shot making and a lot of perimeter shot making, but Maxey did what he could. Tobias Harris picked up uh, for what James Harden couldn't provide, and that's really what I want to focus on in this series and moving forward. We were all ready to praise James Harden after game one. He makes all these big threes. Yeah, guys. You fans who bought that, y'all drank the Kool-Aid. Y'all bought the Kool-Aid. You shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. It wasn't impressive to me, making going for 21 points on seven threes. I can get hot like that. My little white ass in the gym, I can knock down a couple threes and start feeling myself. James Harden doesn't have burst. Yeah. James Harden can't get downhill anymore. You saw his limitations the whole way through this game. He shoots 2 of 8 from behind the arc. He shoots 3 of 13 from the field. He can still pass, he can still make plays for other people. But what James Harden can't do is is consistently score the basketball still at this point in his career because he just can't get to space like he used to. And Harden realized that. I think like you said after the first game, Carson, going up against these long-rangey defenders yep. in Brooklyn, these physical guys, you want to stop going downhill. And what does that lead to? It leads to him settling for that three-pointer. And you see his value offensively tonight. Um, or, excuse me, the other night. When he's not making that three, he's not a very valuable offensive piece. And that's the big question about this team moving forward. Can Maxi and Harris, because I believe in their defensive ceiling. When everybody's engaged, this is a good defense. Fundamentally, I think so. Harden is not going to be great in the playoffs. I will tell you that. Mm -hmm. Harden is going to have his games where he shoots the lights out, and he's great from behind the arc, and he has 20 pieces like that. But what James Harden is not going to do is kill you from all over the court, turn back the clock, and be the scorer that he once was. So the big question for the Philadelphia 76ers in these playoffs are, can Tobias Harris and Tyrese Maxey pick up the slack that James Harden is not going to give them? And can James Harden do enough for this team? Can this team stay engaged throughout the playoffs defensively on every possession, and yeah, those are the big questions, Tobias Harris and Tyrese Maxey picked up the slack for James Harden and what they didn't give them, is that going to happen in tougher series, because this is not a tough series, this is the Brooklyn Nets, we're going to have to wait and see, but uh, yeah, that was my big takeaway, is that like the Jekyll and Hyde act that we have from Phoenix, you're going to get a Jekyll and Hyde act from James Harden all playoffs long, just be prepared, I think we've known that, But I want to reiterate that once more, that this is how Harden is going to be throughout these playoffs. And if you expect him to be the old Harden, you're just wrong, buddy.
2: Two buckets inside the arc through two games for James Harden. If that doesn't concern you, then I don't know what will. Because that combined with, I mean, a lot of people I'm sure are already skeptical of him because of his playoff resume, but the bottom line is, as you said, he is the one who looks outmatched trying to get downhill against this level of length and athleticism and defense from these wings. So they need him to be better. I mean, Maxey could be their second-leading scorer, and maybe they could still make a deep run because he's that kind of bucket getter. And Tobias Harris can absolutely step up for 20 on any given night, but it sure would be great if you could count on Harden for 22 because his playmaking is so immensely valuable. But, man, he's really, really reliant on that three ball right now. Yeah, I also give props to the Nets for the intensity with which they were swarming Embiid, and they did definitely make him uncomfortable in stretches. I mean, eight turnovers in this game. They have to get credit for the pressure that they applied for the length that they have there, and this does remain a test of the kind of decision-making that we're going to see from Embiid because I don't think he's going to get doubled to this sort of gimmicky extent against anybody else who they play because next round it's going to be Boston. Boston's got legit good personnel, but I do think he's gonna see a lot of doubles. I think he's Gonna see that as one of the primary ways to try to attack Any flaw in his game because as a one-on-one scorer, we know how utterly dominant he has become and yeah I thought that mostly he was unselfish in this game. I mean he only took 11 shots He had the seven assists, but he lost the handle at times. He got flustered. He made bad decisions uh, with his passes so That was an interesting thing to see. But overall, Philly's way more talented. They remain more talented. Good for Cam Johnson, dude. I loved it. It was a great game. Macau was solid again. Spencer Dinwiddie's not a guy you want to be running a lot of offense through. And I think the Nets are going to have to shoot really well. And they're going to have to, I would say, really make Embiid uncomfortable. But even in this game, you know, he had eight turnovers and only 20 and the Sixers didn't shoot the lights out but they just have the complimentary scoring that's going to compensate for anything so good luck to the Nets winning a game maybe they can do it on their home floor but I have zero concerns about Philly advancing from this series but I do have concerns about Harden long term I think that is definitely something to track all right everybody there you have it we will be back in a couple more nights with more playoff thoughts so stay tuned in for that We're going to be coming at you guys consistently three times a week. This is so much fun having this much great basketball, and it's an absolute joy to talk about it with you all. So you guys can find the shows on YouTube now. If you didn't know, we're uploading the full episodes. So check out Nerd Sesh on YouTube. And, of course, you can get us on all audio platforms. And please go ahead, give us a rate and review. That would really help. And all of our social handles, TikTok at Nerd Sesh, where we're most prolific, most consistent check that out and twitter at nerd underscore sesh instagram at nerd sesh for some graphics some clips from the pod if you're not able to catch the whole thing so with that as always appreciate you guys i've been carson brever i have been
3: logan camden
2: and this was nerd sesh